Hi, my name is King Truth and welcome to the King Truth Podcast. Today on the show, I'll be talking about my takeaways from part one of the Botham Jean trial, the Trump impeachment, and Killer Mike talking about when America was great. So stick around. It has been one year since the tragic night in Dallas. Amber Geiger finished her shift and headed home. When she arrived at her apartment, she entered and found an intruder inside of her place. Feeling threatened, she shot the individual twice, center mass. But what she came to realize was she was the intruder and killed an innocent man in his home. On Monday, the trial against the police officer, Amber Geiger, who killed an innocent, unarmed black man, Botham Jean, began. For six days, Jean's family had to sit in court and listen to testimony about the death of their child. The prosecution closed their case on Thursday, and the defense has been going since Friday, when Geiger took the stand. Court resumes again on Monday, but here are some things that I took from the first week of the trial. So the first thing I took was Gene's parents saw the video of his final moments. On Tuesday, jurors were shown the body cam footage from the night of September 6, 2008. This video showed officers scrambling to get up the stairs and down the hallways, rushing toward the apartment where Jean was lying dead. Well, like he was dying. He wasn't dead yet. The video also showed first responders taking turns performing CPR as Jean lied bleeding on the floor, unconscious with a few faint pulses, desperately trying to save his life. Amber Geiger appeared briefly on the body cam footage before being ordered to get away. And you can hear Geiger on audio repeating, I thought it was my apartment. I thought it was my apartment. Chief, can you hear me? Hey, can you hear me? One of the officers was saying to Jean, when, who was on the floor, in a light-colored shorts and a dark t-shirt. Jean's family left the courtroom that day before the video played. But when the judge asked to replay it on Wednesday, sending the jury out of the room, John's parents were still there. This would be the first time that the family has ever seen the video of the final moments of their child's life. Judge Tammy Kemp didn't realize that John's family was still in the courtroom as the video played. So she quickly apologized. The second thing I took was residents and the ranger testified about the confusing floor plan. So apparently, Geiger wasn't the only resident to go to the wrong apartment on, or floor. Her attorneys have been trying to show that it's a common thing that happens, particularly for residents on the third and fourth floors where Geiger and Jean live. Ranger uh, David Armstrong, who was the lead investigator on the case, testified that he had trouble knowing which floor he was on while investigating the shooting last year. There were no clear, obvious signs showing what level you were on, he testified when he was questioned by Robert Rogers, one of Geiger's attorneys. Armstrong also told the jury that he led a team that interviewed 297 of the 349 residents at the Southside Flats 
and 46 of them have walked to the wrong floor and put their key in the door. Of those residents, 38 of them were from the third and fourth floor. And then some residents testified in court that they've gone to the wrong apartment. One resident, Mark Lipscomb, told the jury Friday about a time he entered the wrong apartment after taking his dog for a walk. He didn't realize the apartment wasn't his until he saw a woman sitting on the couch in her living room. Geiger was reasonable to think that Jean was a burglar when she entered the home and that there was no probable cause to her arrest. That is what the Texas Ranger had said. I don't believe that the shooting was reckless or criminally negligent based on the totality of the investigation and the circumstances of the facts, Armstrong said. He testified again on Saturday for the defense. When cross-examined by the prosecution, he acknowledged that the pants Jean was wearing did not have pockets. Ranger, um, Mr. Jean had no pockets in his shorts, correct? That I, I cannot answer. Let's see the pictures. Sure. And he said no pockets? Correct. That's correct. It doesn't appear to be. Possible countering Geiger's account that she cannot see his hands when she fatally shot him. Prosecutors also noted throughout the week, however, that no matter how many residents went to the wrong floor or wrong apartment, Geiger's experience was the lone instance in which someone was shot. The third thing that I took was Geiger's text message to her partner after the shooting. Now, the prosecutors made the argument that Geiger did not do enough to save Jean once, she, once he was shot. The prosecution said, when you listen critically to what she is saying, you are going to hear that she is as concerned or more concerned about how this is going to affect her than this poor guy on the floor next to her. Hermes said, uh, referencing a 911 call that Geiger made shortly after 10 p.m., in which she said 19 times that she was in the wrong apartment. Get up, man. Yeah, this is Carla. Where's your emergency? Hi, Hi this is um, off-duty officer. Um, can I get any emails? Um, uh, I'm in number... Um, do you need police as well or just EMS? Yes, I need both. Okay, what's the address? I'm at apartment number 1478. I'm in 1478. And what's the yeah. address there? Um, it's 1210 South Lamar, 1478. Yeah. I what's missed, going on? I I'm an off-duty officer. I thought it was in my apartment, and I shot a guy thinking that he was thinking it was my apartment. He shot someone? Yes, I thought it was my apartment. I'm fucked. Oh my god. I'm sorry. Okay, and the, where, where are you at right now? I'm in... Uh, what do you mean? I'm inside the apartment with him. Hey, come on. What's here. your name? I'm Amber Geiger. I need to get me... I'm, I'm in... Okay, we have help on the way. I know, but oh. I'm... I'm gonna lose my job. I thought it was my apartment. Okay, and hey, man. Hold on. Fuck. Okay, stay with me, okay? I am. I am. I need. I need a new supervisor. Oh, yeah. Hey, bud. 
Right over here, over here. Okay, go ahead and talk to her. No, it's me. It's, I'm off duty. I'm off duty. I thought, I thought they were in my apartment. I thought this was my floor. Geiger said she performed first aid on Jean in an affidavit. But as you hear the audio, you do not hear her doing chest compressions, or did she inform the operator that she was applying pressure to the wounds of Jean? Prosecutors argued she did not render adequate aid, nor did she use the first aid supplies in her work bag. Now, while she was on the 911 call with the 911 dispatcher, Geiger sent two text messages to her partner on the force, who prosecutors said she was having an intimate relationship with. One at 10.02 saying, I need you, hurry. And another a minute later saying, I effed up. And this is according to testimony. All right, you also indicated um, that you've never done CPR before. No, I have not. But you were trained to do CPR in the academy, were you not? We were trained. I've never done it on an actual person. All right, so to, at least then to the extent that you were, um, you weren't suggesting that you didn't know how to properly perform CPR. They taught us briefly in the academy. You knew how to perform CPR properly, right? I never done it on a person. I couldn't say I actually... Ms. Geiger, were you trained to do CPR properly? Yes, we were. Okay, were you at those classes? Yes, I was. Were you paying attention during those classes? Yes, I was. Did you properly perform CPR on Mr. John? No, I did not. And I you did. could have, right? I tried to do a little CPR. Why would you try and do a little CPR on a man who's died who needs your full attention? Because I had to keep getting up to see where I was at. I that was more important than giving life-saving uh, help to this man. I had no idea where I was at. You were able to tell the 911 call taker very, very soon on that you were in apartment 1478. After that moment, why couldn't you have given him full, undivided, and proper attention? I was still on the phone with... You can put the phone on speakerphone, ma'am. I had so much stuff racing through my head. Oh, obviously, you were also able, at least on two occasions, to, uh, you must have stopped completely giving him CPR when you sent a message to Mark Rivera saying, I need you hurry, right? I did text him that. Okay, and so you must have, at that point, stopped CPR entirely. Yes, I did. And then, not even a minute later, you must have stopped CPR entirely again to send a second message to Mark Rivera. I was already out in the hallway at... Oh, so you had already left him? That's whenever they told me to leave, the officers. So that's, no, ma'am, I'm talking about at 10.03 p.m. Uh, Mr. Lee, Officer Lee, and Officer Blair didn't arrive until almost 10.05. Yes, I do remember that, like, whenever they showed me, I sent those text messages. At 10.03 p.m. and at 10.02 p.m., you sent messages, text messages to Mark Rivera. Yes, I did. Text messages that would have required you to have put the phone in a place where you can see it, and you used your fingers to write out the words, I need you hurry, dot, 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 right? I don't remember how many hands I used. But you texted Mr. Rivera using your hands. Yes, I did. And as you were doing that, you were unable to give Mr. Jean your full attention, the attention that he deserved. Yes, I did. And then you made the choice to do that a second time. Isn't that true? Yes, sir. All right, so at both of those times, you put your needs and your wants over his. I still cared about him. Did you put your needs and your wants over him when you decided to do that? No, sir. All right. Authorities also recovered those text messages, but 
Geiger allegedly deleted other messages. Rather than texting her partner, Geiger should have devoted all of her attention to providing first aid to Jean. The fourth thing I took was Geiger, in her testimony, said, I wish he was the one with the gun who killed me. So she took the stand on Friday and she turned into, she turned on the waterworks while on the stand. When you pulled your weapon at night and you fired, why did you fire? Said, I hate that I have to live with this every single day of my life. How do you feel what you did, Mr. John? <laughs> I feel like a terrible person. I feel like a piece of crap. I hate it. I hate, it every, I hate that I have to live with this every single day of my life. <laughs> and I ask God for forgiveness. And I hate myself every single day. I feel like I don't deserve the chance to be with my family and friends. <laughs> I wish he was the one with the gun that killed me. I never wanted to take an innocent person's life. And I am so sorry. This is not about hate. It's about Mr. being Mr. scared Mr. that night. Mr. Shook, you want to ask your next question? But as you listen to her testimony, she's talking about how the incident affected her and not the impact that she had on Jean's life and his family's life. She also described the shooting itself, saying that she heard Jean before entering the apartment and gave commands for him to show his hands to her as she entered but she said that he moved towards her. Now on cross-examination, prosecutors asked why did she not take cover or call for backup as she had been trained to do. You said, I put the key in and I hear moving around. As the door began to open, I wanted to find the threat. As the door was opened fully, that's when you saw the silhouette. Yes, sir. So you knew from outside that door with the protection of that door between you, that there was a, something inside that was making noise? Yes, sir. Okay. So, here were your options then. Your options were, at this point, to go in and find the threat, 
Or your option would have been, I'm going to back off, I'm going to take a position of cover and concealment, and I'm going to get some help out here. Those are options, right? They are. Okay. But you chose option A, which was, I'm going in to find the threat. That was, it was the only option that went through my head. I was at home, and I... Ma'am, will you answer my questions? Yes, sir. You chose to go in and find the threat, even though you were in a position to have taken cover and concealment, right? No, sir. Your training, which you've told this jury several times now, that you revert to, you've told them that, right? Yes, I have. You rely on that training is what you've said. Yes, I do. That's why you pull the gun when you pull the gun, right? Yes, sir. That's why you keep your right hand empty. Yes, sir. That's why you backed your truck in, correct? Yes, sir. Because that's what police do, right? Yes, sir. But you're telling me at the most critical moment of the entire thing, your training just abandoned you. No, sir. No, because your training says that when you're at this point here for officer safety, to maximize your safety, do not go inside that apartment. On a call. Ma'am, your general orders indicate that you are on duty 24-7. They do. And you know that that training is designed for your safety, first and foremost. Yes, sir. And that's not only what your orders are, that's how you guys are trained. Yes, sir. So for your safety, you should have taken a position of cover and concealment and got help. And instead you decided to go in. Yes, I did go in. You had a police radio on you, didn't you? I did. Did it work? It did. You live two blocks away from police headquarters? Yes, sir. You know that when you call out as a, as a police officer, the number one thing for every other police officer is to come and help you if you say that you need help. Yes, sir. You know that the response time on this call was about two minutes and bodies were at the apartment. Yes, sir. So you could have taken a position of cover and concealment. You could have called for help on your radio, and you could have had the cavalry there in two minutes. I could have. You could have had SWAT mobilized. It, they could have. You could have had canine mobilized. They could have also. Right. And had you done any one of those things, Mr. Jean would probably be alive today. Right? Yes, sir. The fifth thing I took was that witnesses cannot tell the jury they think Geiger acted reasonably. One of the most surprising moments of the trial was when Armstrong testified that he didn't believe Geiger committed a crime. After finishing your investigation and looking at the totality of the circumstances and considering everything, do you believe today that you have probable cause to believe that Amber Geiger committed a crime, which is what uh, Geiger's defense attorney asked the Ranger, Armstrong. Armstrong replied, based on the totality of the circumstances, based on the complete investigation, no sir. But the jury never heard his opinion. Kemp didn't allow him to testify before the jury. 
Kip didn't allow Armstrong or former Dallas Police Deputy Chief Craig Miller to share with the jury their opinion that Geiger was reasonable when she believed Jean was an intruder and that her life was in danger. It is in my opinion that in this case, Miss Geiger, thinking she was in her own apartment, fired a shot at a person that she felt was a threat to her, and that was reasonable, which is what the Chief uh, Craig Miller said. But the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled that there is no definition for reasonable, and it's left up to each juror to make that decision. Now, Geiger faces up to 99 years in prison, and based on what has been said in court by many different witnesses and not knowing the makeup and mindset of the jury, I can't place my finger on how this will turn out. Is she guilty of manslaughter? Is she guilty of criminal negligence? Is she guilty of murder? I don't know. But in my eyes, I would say yes. But there are many factors in play here that can bring back a not guilty verdict. Factor one, this trial is happening in Texas. Factor two, the fear of black bodies by some white people makes John a threat even though he was in his own place. And factor three, Geiger is a blonde-haired, small in stature white woman that was defending herself against the big black man. If the jury can be blind and just rule on the facts, she will be found guilty. But again, I don't know. I'll keep you posted on anything new that happens this week on this trial, so stay tuned. June 17th, 1972, the Watergate scandal happened that showed the involvement of the President of the United States, Richard Nixon. Now, for those of you who do not know what Watergate is, there was a break-in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C., and the Nixon administrations attempted to cover up its involvement. The Nixon administration resisted all investigative efforts by Congress to get to the bottom of the situation. By September 1973, there was a sense that Nixon had regained some political strength, the American public had become burned out by the Watergate hearings, and that Congress was not willing to undertake impeachment absent some major revelation from the Nixon White House tapes or some major new action by the president against the investigation. But Nixon's own actions with the Saturday Night Massacre led to his articles of impeachment being filed and ultimately Nixon stepping down. Fast forward 47 years and we're back here again. Trump has been under investigation since he fired Comey in 2017 and he has used the same Nixon playbook. Resist, attack, play victim. And to be honest, it was working for him. The Mueller investigation proved many things that happened and showed that the president had obstructed justice, which was one of the articles filed against Nixon. But the public didn't care. Congress was showing was not showing the backbone to bring the impeachment charges, and Trump pretty much escaped that scandal. But like Nixon, Trump couldn't get out of his own way. An unspecified whistleblower complaint 
had been filed with the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community on August 12th. The complaint was made by an intelligence officer who was troubled by a promise the president made during the call. This came from the Washington Post, who cited two former U.S. officials familiar with the matter. The IG testified in front of Congress that the matter was of urgent concern, but the administration would not let him go into any detail. For a week, Democrats wanted, to, wanted the complaint and a transcript of that call they felt was related to this complaint, Trump's call with Ukraine. And of course, Trump reverted back to the playbook that had worked for him with the Mueller investigation. He tweeted, another fake news story out there. It never ends. Virtually any time I speak on the phone to a foreign leader, I understand that there may be many people listening with various U.S. agencies not to mention those from the other country itself. No problem. Turns out, though, that this was not fake news. On Wednesday, the Trump administration released a rough draft of his conversation with Ukraine. On Thursday, the whistleblower complaint was released. And with all of the talking by Rudy Giuliani, everything has proven factual in the complaint. Trump had withheld $400 million in aid to Ukraine in July. While on the phone with the Ukrainian president later that month, Trump asked them for a favor. And that favor was to investigate Joe Biden and his son for America. A few weeks ago, those funds were finally released to Ukraine. What Trump did violates the Constitution and Democrats in the House has now started the impeachment process. A report on Friday that they were showed that they were looking to have an impeachment vote by Thanksgiving. There is no way he can survive this. But we're talking Trump and we're talking his supporters. But I did say the same thing about Russia. Two weeks ago was the Revolt Summit in Atlanta, and I'm sure all of you by now have seen the clips or watched the summit on YouTube. The most important, the most impactful part was the panel that featured Killer Mike, T.I., and Candace Owens. They touched on some very important topics on that panel and was really informative and entertaining. But one part that stood out to me was when T.I. asked Candace Owens, when was America great? that Trump is always talking about? And this is a valid question. When the campaign slogan came out, it took me back to the campaign slogan of George Wallace when he ran for president in 1964. And the time he was talking about was when white men ruled, white women served, and blacks were subjected to low-class citizenship with no equal rights. So was that what Trump was talking about when he said, make America great again? Well, Killer Mike gave a great answer that I want to expand upon. He said, I'll tell you when America was great. Seven years after the ending of the Civil War. Exactly what Hold, Candace, because you, you didn't give the comment, so you weren't prepared for that one. Seven, no, but that's, 
That's not to jump on Candace because, again, I'm disagreeing with my friend. Seven years after the end of the Civil War, blacks within seven to 15 years accumulated over 15 million acres of land. Since, hold on, before we get to clapping because the niggas bought some shit. Black people were the only skilled labor in there. So if it was welding to be done, iron bending, cotton picking, it was black people. So instantly, your value became more. And this is so true. After the Civil War, with the protection of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution and the Civil Rights Act of the 1866, African Americans enjoyed a period when they were allowed to vote, actively participate in the political process, acquire the land of former owners, seek their own employment, and use public accommodations. For example, the Nicodemus Town Company was incorporated in 1877 by six blacks and two white Kansians. It was the oldest of about 20 towns established predominantly for blacks in the West. Some applied to be part of the colonization projects to Libya and locations outside of the United States. Others were willing to move north and west. Benjamin Singleton led the exodus of African Americans from various points in the south to Kansas. Some emancipated slaves quickly fled from the, from the plantation of their owners, while others became wage laborers for former owners. Most importantly, African Americans can make choices for themselves about where they labored and the type of work they performed. You dominated those seven years after civil after civil um, after the Civil War. You were Republicans. You had more blacks in the House and Senate than you do now, and you dominated your own economic communities. You did that as Republicans. As Democrats, you did the same in cities like Atlanta. You failed in other cities. But the most important thing is self-organizing. And because blacks in South Carolina vastly outnumbered whites. The newly enfranchised voters were able to send so many African-American representatives to the state assembly that they outnumbered the whites. Many were able, many were able legislators who worked to rewrite, to rewrite the state constitution and pass laws ensuring aid to public education, universal male franchise, and the civil rights for all. The only two African-Americans to serve as United States senators in the 19th century was Blanche K. Bruce and Hiram Rebels, both of Mississippi. Frederick Douglass was appointed to several important governmental positions in the years after the Civil War, including Minister Resident and Council General to Haiti, Recorder of Deeds, and a U.S. Marshal. Many scholars have identified more than 1,500 African-American office holders during the Reconstruction era, 1863 to 1877. Today, there are only 48 black members in the House and three in the Senate. That is just 21 more than what was in the Georgia State Assembly during Reconstruction. Killer Mike finishes his point by expressing what we need to get back to and get back to that mindset and get what's ours.
until we decide what is the real breaking point. If blacks are 15% of this nation, we should be 15% of Wall Street. We should be 15% of music execs, 15% of Hollywood execs, 15% of governors, 15% of mayors. And until you hit that 15%, you're failing, 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 fucking failing, no matter who your master is. So pick a better master, I say kill your masters and get your own shit. Well, that's all for today's episode of King Truth Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join me again next week when I review the second week of the Botham John trial and another breakdown of Killer Mike at the Revolt Summit and the Black Agenda. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Google Podcasts so you never miss an episode. Also, follow me on Instagram at King Truth Podcast. Until next time.